0: Welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now, this 12 part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies, and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So we asked them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better. And if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often, it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. Hello, and welcome back to the second part of this podcast with Chet Richards, author of Certain to Win and long-term friend and collaborator with philosopher John Boyd. Now, in these two podcasts, we're reading Boyd backwards. That is, started with Boyd's last paper, The Essence of Winning and Losing, and working our way back to the beginning. Now, the reason why we're doing this is it makes it easier to see how we can apply his ideas to mostly peaceful but competitive situations, e.g. business, but also prepare for increasingly challenging, stressful, and even conflictual situations, which takes us all the way up to Boyd's Patterns of Conflict, which is his most famous work, but is focused on how to win a war. So, if you've yet to listen to part one, I suggest you go there first. In this podcast, we'll be focusing on Organic Design for Command and Control, patterns of conflict destruction and creation and we'll also be exploring how chet has applied these ideas in his life and also looking at how he came to those ideas before working with boyd firstly though we're going to take one last look at a part of boyd's strategic game of isolation and integration Chet, when we when we paused the last conversation we were just wrapping up the conversation around the strategic game of isolation and interaction, um, and we're just about to get into organic design for command and control. But I think we were, you know, we we're just having a quick chat about um, Boyd's M M&M and strategy. I just wondered if you wanted just to share that with the listeners.
1: Yes, because a lot of people, when they're trying to apply Boyd's uh, uh, concepts to things other than war, uh, they have a hard time disassociating himself from the war domain this, who were talking about building snowmobiles, one of the hardest things was trying to imagine the parts not being part of their original um, um, domain, like trying to listen to a uh, Rossini's uh, William Tell overture without thinking of the Lone Ranger little thing there. Uh, but. Uh, in this particular case, uh, I think it's very important because I see this I see this fairly often when people are talking about politically political campaigns and one and one uh, candidate is operating inside the other candidate's OODA loop completely misses the point. You can operate inside the other guy's oodle loop all you want, but if the voters empathize more or identify more with the other with the other candidate, you're going to lose no matter how clever your strategy. So Boyd came up with this construct that he called his candy strategy based on motherhoods and mismatches, M&Ms. And the idea is that the overall idea is you want to wrap yourself in the flag, motherhood and apple pie, while highlighting mismatches between what your opponents say they stand for and what they actually do. We talked about that a little bit yesterday when we talked about giving your, uh, giving your opponents a rope and allowing themselves to hang themselves. And you can't hang them, but you can you can hand them plenty of rope. And when they do hang themselves with it, you can take lots of pictures. So that's the basic idea. Um, so when you're looking at things like political campaigns, what you should be looking at is the emotional, emotional appeal out of it. Who is appealing more to the sorts of things that the voters will find most attractive or will identify most as being what they identify uh, identify with or or want to support. Uh, Dominique Cummings played that game extremely well in the um, in the Brexit uh, campaign, and as that's pointed out very well in 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 the movie uh, Brexit, where uh, Benedict Cumberbatch played uh, played Dominic Cummings. Cummings, incidentally, is a big fan of Boy and and references him often in his um, blog and website. Uh, but he understood he needed emotional issues that would tug at the voters, and the one he finally came up with was Take Back Control. And uh, the movie, uh, and those of you that live in the UK, whether you were a Remain or Brexit, obviously I don't have a dog in that fight. But those of you that uh, were there, try to disassociate yourself from what sides you're on and just look at how he played Boyd's M&M strategy. The other side was playing, you might say, maneuver warfare. They were coming up with all kinds of of very impressive arguments based on real data of why Britain should remain in the EU. Whereas Cummings was playing the M and M strategy, and and, uh, typically the side that plays that strategy wins because, and, and you can't repeat this too often, where the heart leads, the mind will follow and that's very very important to keep that in mind uh in virtually everything we do involving strategy you're you will figure out what direction you want to go and 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 your your prefrontal cortex your your mind will 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 figure out a way to get you there uh and if you're very very clever if, uh, what happens is rather than using that intelligence to figure out why it is you're going the way you're going it uses that intelligence to construct more and more clever arguments for why where you want to go is where you ought to go right. so it's very complex and strategic game includes includes all of those all of those dimensions in it which is why i i, I recommend it very very highly to your uh, to your readers and uh um again and look at it in the standpoint of, of all three levels. Now, as John also pointed out, it can be a very complex game. You can have mismatches all over the place. We talked about the mismatch between what you say you, you do and what you actually do. Um, there uh, which would be a mismatch between the moral level and the physical level. There all can be mismatch between the moral level and the mental level, mismatches between the moral level and the actual environment, mismatches between the mental level and the actual environment. We talked about the mismatches between, well we haven't talked about it yet, but anyway, mismatches between the mental level and the physical level, where you want to do something, but you're just, you're just not capable of, of doing it, perhaps because you haven't practiced it enough. And then there's mismatches between the physical level and the environment. If you add all that up, that's six different mismatches you can come up with. And so you could many, many, many different ways to play the game. And so what you have to do is kind of pick the way you want to play it based on the arena that you're that you're in. So if you're on a one-on-one, one-on-one conflict with somebody, uh, particularly if you're in a, uh, a structured match, like a judo match or a karate tournament or, or something like that, it tends to be mismatches between the mental and the physical um, or the physical and the environment. If you're in something more like politics, and probably to a large extent, even business, the moral factor starts becoming very, very important. You're tugging at people, uh, trying to get them to identify with you, to want to not only buy your product, but to help your company. Again, Apple played that, and still does to a large extent, plays that extremely well. People do things to support, to support the app, you know, Apple company, uh, as well as, of course, because they like their products. So it's going to say it's a very rich uh, uh, framework that I think will repay repay a lot of thought and a lot of uh, study. Now, if we move from there over, and even though I think organic or design may have come Can out. I just, of,
0: let me just let me just pause there there, Jack. Because I, I mean, you've mentioned Dominic Cummings, and I, I wasn't I wasn't aware that he was a he was a fan of Boyd. Um, I think he, he can't have read all of his work because otherwise he wouldn't be um, so dishonest, quite frankly. Um, and so there's an element there, because I was going to ask you about the M&M strategy, um, because I'm just wondering if it stopped working now. And actually, we can use Cummings as an example of that, because the stuff that, that so that we went into Brexit and um, we chose as a, as a nation um, Brexit. But there were very clearly um, lies and they've been proven to have been lies that were told that you know Dominic Cummings was one of the people that was um, that was creating these these lies, <laughs> such as how much money we're going to win back, how there's not going to be an issue uh, with about pounds
1: a week for the NHS or something like that. All,
0: all those things, right? And it's um and likewise. So there's there's something at the very end of of strategic game, um and and John, John says um the so definitions it says evil occurs when individuals or groups embrace codes of conduct or standards of behavior for their own personal well-being and social approval yet violate those very same codes or standards to undermine the personal well-being and social approval of others and corruption occurs when individuals or groups for their own benefit violate codes of conduct or standards of behavior that they profess or are, are expected to uphold. And I would, I would say my, one of the, the most demoralizing things from my side for the last two years, especially, and, and certainly accelerated in Brexit, um, not Brexit, but in, in COVID is just the, dis, the, the difference between what, what the government has said and what they've done. And also mm-hmm. the evident corruption, um, which has only been brought to light by citizens and not by members of the, of the political class who seem to have stood by and allowed it to happen. Um, so contracts going to friends from the health secretary for example and other members there was a VIP track for um, for supporters of the Conservative Party our ruling party so that they were some of them were given contracts enormous contracts in 400 million dollars um, uncontested for stuff mm-hmm. that they had no experience of and yeah. I was just wondering so and it's and I guess you know going back to brexit that the, the the remainers didn't use the the, the motherhood and um, was it motherhood and morality uh, <coughs> argument?
1: And mismatches. Motherhood um, and
0: mismatches, right? So, it, so in that sense, so it's so what they didn't do was they didn't they didn't have within the time that they had, they weren't sufficiently able to call out the lies that the other party were were telling or that it was untrue.
1: Not even clear that 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 would have what would have made a difference. Again, it's hard to say. We can't we can't rewind history and play, the um, uh play it according to that new scenario. Um. But uh, the only reason that I brought this up is to show the power of this. Uh, yeah,
0: hundred percent, hundred percent.
1: That's very important. to understand that. Now, as I said, I don't have a side in the in the remain and leave. Gosh knows we have enough corruption in this country with our own COVID.
0: Uh, I think, and, and you know, with that with that whole thing, like we were saying at the at the very beginning, is that uh, there's this distortion of 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 any kind of debate, and people now are exaggerating their own side and. And not willing to listen to the other, and it, and it's well, and the you know the the way in which science is no longer appearing to be science anymore. Yeah. Um, and again, so it's just a it's just a very you know very stressful thing. But I think if we're and the other thing on on this one, what, what I love about the strategic game is the way in which the vision that that the bide and the way that you can you can articulate a vision is one that's positive and inspiring. And that's the thing that really has been missing for in the whole thing. And I, I had a bit of pushback from people saying, why am I so critical of the, the way the government's you know, acted? Could I, you know, could we have done better? Could I have done better? And it's like, well, you know, there's, there's one thing that we could have done and that we could have inspired other people to take better care of themselves. So mm-hmm. so within this whole within this whole area is if we had a vision of, of a healthy society of people taking personal responsibility for themselves, then. There would have been an element it's like yes we're all free to choose it's just that the consequences of, of not choosing to stay in physical shape have never been more never been more severe and so in that sense is if if there was more inspiration and less coercion and fear then I think that the people could have got into the science better or or had someone talk someone through the science rather than just say this is this is the view accept it rather than you know apply your own discernment and, and your own thinking so that you can you can figure out what's true and what isn't. So when someone comes to you with a pack of lies, you can pick it apart and and tell that this guy is lying to you.
1: That uh, that is unless he's lying to support your 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 current orientation and beliefs you already have. See that's the that's the problem. There is, it's it's sort of like Einstein's theory of relativity. There is no absolute fixed moral reference in this mm. in this sense. Everybody has essentially their own moral code. What you try to do it in in uh, in Einheit is is pick people whose moral codes are fairly close to alignment via training and experience and all that, bring their moral codes very close into alignment and then use that aligned moral code then as your command and control mechanism. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it, But until you do that, it, all these other tools that boys has come up with are just simply aren't going to work. People will will do. We say what they want to do, what they feel is the right thing to do, uh, and they'll and they'll find ways to rationalize it and justify it. It's, uh, yeah. it's just it's just the way that it, you know the way that it works. Uh, so p- what you need to do is recognize that's the way that it works and act accordingly. So mm. and, and especially
0: of, for our own thinking, right? Is that we expose our own thinking to to challenge and and dissenting views so that. So that when we do, we're naturally going to get caught into our own orientation, and that's going to bias us towards seeing things that support that old orientation. And so in that sense, it's it's in what way can we take a a stronger view on our own ideas and beliefs to make sure that that we're not making mistakes and that could be catastrophic.
1: That is where that outside influence Mm. is critical. Particularly for organizations that get trapped in in, in their own uh, their own dynamics and what's inside the company becomes much more important than what's going on outside the company, including its long term survival. Um, because you can you can easily see competition, for example, between you and several others for the next promotion. But deciding what the future of the company is going to be ten years from now, some you know much more nebulous and uh, very very uh, you know. Very difficult to uh, uh, to establish, to nail down, to come up with good uh, good rationale for. Uh, And people always figure, okay, well, when I get to be vice president, then I can I can do all these things, you know. They rationalize it that way. Um, Or in in the same is there's always ways to rationalize it uh, to yourself. And that's why you need that outside that outside influence. Why outside outside board of directors uh, or or some kind of an outside organization that has some authority, uh, I think it's just extremely, extremely um, uh, important. Mm -hmm. One way that family businesses, for example, and I did a fair amount of work with with family businesses, is uh, they have an advantage in that what they can, they can do is they can have family members that are not members of the, uh, of, of the company itself, they're, so they're outside the company, but they clearly have a stake since they have an ownership state, family business, they have an ownership state in how the company is, uh, is run. So they can bring an outside perspective um, into the company, and they can enforce it since they're the company owners. There are downsides, of course, in that you have interpersonal dynamics among family members that are uh, uh, a joy to behold, let's just uh, you know what to say. But at least in theory, they have a way of bringing outside information in and making sure that it's not sloughed off by a self-serving, uh, short-term oriented management. Um, I think every, every, every company that really intends on surviving as opposed to one that just intends on on a pumping up how much money flows into top management this next quarter. Uh, And I know it sounds brutal to say that way, but it seems to me that's how many companies act. Needs to have some sort of, of enforceable outside, you know, outside mechanism that says, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, I know you think this and this and this, but um, you might want to consider this. And furthermore, uh, if you don't consider this, we will, we will consider whether or not you should really continue as as, as CEO. I think you have to do, it, but you definitely should consider. It. You're heading down a way that seems to us uh, to be disastrous, and it also seems to us that you haven't you haven't thought it through."
0: So, so we're getting now then into into the way in which an organization runs and and leads itself and how that can be improved whether it was you know with with external with supportive but 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 externally you know people with external perspective um so getting on now then to to, to boyd's organic design for command and control um which i know it emphasizes that's one of the key ones that emphasizes interaction right so so what did boyd have to say about the the ideal way? Uh, and principles behind the ideal way for for running an effective organization
1: well again it goes back to what we were just talking about you can you can think of uh, the idea behind command and control is to get the organization to take actions that uh uh further the accomplishments of the objectives of that organization i know that sounds kind of contrived but it's, it's, it all has to do with getting people to do things that in the end will help the organization succeed. The problem, of course, is that it's not always clear uh, to the people running the company, the people in the company, the people that own the company, government con- uh, regulators, whatever, what those actions should be. And partly that, that, that question is answered to John's uh, what what he originally called blitzkrieg climate, but he later dropped that. And his organizational, um, um, uh, his, yeah, pretty close organizational climate for operational success. And wh- what he basically says in that is it all starts with Einheit. It all starts with this feeling of we've talked about this before of cohesion, of oneness. We're all in this together. People that we can trust. He defined Einheit as mutual trust. The actual you know, literal meaning from German is something more like oneness uh, or unity or unit uh, even. Um, uh, but it all has that comp- idea is that we're, we're somehow, what's important is working together to accomplish our objectives out in the outside world. And we're willing to give up uh, some amount of our personal uh, uh, freedom may not be the right word, but options in order to ensure the survival of the whole organization, realizing that that will then, if the whole organization survives, then our ability to survive on our own terms will be uh, improved. And again, you can go back to the real weird primitive thing. A person on his own own, out in the wild is very unlikely to survive. Uh, A modern person in the wild virtually certain not to survive. Uh, For one thing, you gotta sleep. And when you sleep, you're pretty vulnerable to attack. And second is, if you attack, you you your eyes only point in one direction, um, so you're very vulnerable to uh, to ambushes, to being to being lured into one direction and hit in the back from another shot in the back, uh, spear in the back, these sorts of things. Um, and so a, a single person, even if they knew how to select plants and and uh, um, Rig up animal snares and start a fire so they could actually get some nutrition out of these plants and animals that they just gathered up and killed. Even if they had all of that, a single person is still so, so extremely vulnerable, they're very unlikely to survive. Not to, not to mention survive on their own terms or improve their capacity for independent action. It may seem like a single person has this, uh, a full capacity for independent action, but not if they're hemmed in in the, in the daily effort of trying to uh, survive. And they're putting oh, all of their effort into trying to survive. That severely limits their capacity for independent action. So a, a solution to that is groups of people band together. Well, the first thing you got to be sure of is the people that you're banding together with don't stab you in the back in the middle of the night. That's where the uh, that's where the Einheit starts to come in. The second thing is you got to be sure that when part of your group goes out on a hunting expedition, that they actually bring some food back with them and don't eat it all on their own. And you can see how this is beginning. So groups that 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 have this degree of cohesion have a tremendous advantage over groups that that don't. As you can. As you can see, a group that's spending most of its action policing its own members doesn't have a lot of uh, energy. Uh, uh, what do I call it? Attention left over to deal with it with the external uh, uh, environment, and so that's why the, the fundamental concept there is is Einheit, and the the uh, um, organizational design uh, rests on that foundation. Without going through the briefing, let me. Uh, 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 let me say, let me cut to the chase John says okay the, the way that you get people to to take action to use their creativity and initiative to accomplish the uh, purposes of the organization is it's based on a, 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 a kind of a layered sort of approach at the bottom layer are a shared a set of set moral values going back to our hunting and gathering group moral values say if you kill something out in the field bring it back for the whole group you, you know, you can take, you can have a little for yourself, we understand that, but your your goal is your focus is the survival of the group so you bring as much of it back into the group as you can. Uh, if you see a small stag or a, a, a small doe or a big stag, you know, you kill the one that is going to bring the most nutrition back to the group, and that includes not only killing it, but being able to drag it back and being able to defend it from other predators and other groups. So you can see even in that thing, people have to take initiative, and they have to use their creativity, they have to make decisions, and all the decision is is a, uh, um, a selection of an, of an action, um there's nothing we should really glorify about making decisions because the decision by itself is totally worthless it's it's a step towards the action and the action is what's really important and quite often the action is taken through the implicit guidance and control link and there's no conscious decision uh um, at all but having gone back to that so we want a group where where people trust each other uh to do things that aid the survival of the group but they also uh Use their creativity and initiative in in furthering those types of actions. So, you've got your your moral code, and then on top of the moral code, you have this uh, this 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 climate, this culture that we might call it. Uh, you know, take the initiative. Uh, you know, use your use your creativity. Uh, don't uh, don't try to micromanage. And when you send somebody out. You, send, you don't go along with them and say, okay, now, uh, unless you're trading them, now stop here, now pull back your bow. You know, At some point, they've got to have the, the ability to do that. Um, and people are really good at their jobs. Uh, Fingerspits and get fooled. They, they train their practice when they're sitting around in the evenings, they're not just sitting around telling stories and, and drinking beer. And beer goes way back as we, as, as we all know. Uh, they're actually they're actually sharpening their knives, or they're or they're or they're making more arrows, or they're practicing with their arrows. They're doing the sorts of things that we're that we're talking about here, and so that becomes your your layer then of your of your doctrine. So we have uh, the moral values, the culture, and the next layer is doctrine, which is basically how we operate. So we don't have to keep explaining things, simple things, over and over and over again to people every time. So for example, if you're sending four people out on a uh, you know on a hunt. They know how to hunt. They you know, they've got the uh, they've got the hunting skills down, you know, down pat because they've trained, they've they've gone out on hunts with more skilled hunters and see what they did, they've tried things, see what work and all of that. And even though in the old days of course they didn't write these things down, a Ill- literacy uh, among hunter gatherers was relatively low, still is but uh, uh, they just knew how to do things. So moral values, the culture, the how we do sorts of things. And then we get into, all right, now given all of that, uh, what is our, our concept of what we're trying to do here? In other words, I have an orientation. You have an orientation. Uh, the members of our group all have orientations. If these orientations are wildly different, uh, it's going to be hard to take, a, a, you know, effective action. But if we all, if we all know, okay, we're here. The enemies are over there. We all that's, you know, we understand all that noise coming from this direction. You know, we know how to interpret that, uh, so that we can act as a group uh, very quickly and as, uh, 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 and with a, a minimum of friction um and that then becomes sort of sort of uh the the top level in all this is our common understanding of 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 what's going on today then all the leader has to do basically is just uh assign people to do things where it isn't already obvious what they should be doing in other words saying okay hey you know we're, we're 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 really low on this and such and so and so i need you you and you to go you know to go do that um and uh you know, uh, the idea there is at that point then it happens, but they know then what it is. So for example, if you want to, if you're forming a war party or a hunting party, basically you say, who's going to be on it and and what do you want them to do? You know, bring back, we really need somebody to bring back some meat or we're in pretty good shape, but we need, we need some, we need water, we need plants, you know, see if you can find some fish, whatever the mission is, you, you then assign them the mission. And that's the very, very top layer of of command and control, but you can't assign them a mission and expect them to do it if they don't have an understanding of how that mission should be accomplished. That's the doctrine layer. And then below that, if they don't have this this idea of uh, while they're out on the mission, being able to use their initiative, use their creativity, the Alphatrach's tactic, uh, what's important on this mission is we've got to bring food back. And yes, some people get injured as they course, quite often did in hunter-gatherer societies, were willing to take that risk sort of thing. And then below that, the shared moral values, you know, when we're successful, we're going to bring most of it back. So John said, you can think of command and control as being this multi-layered sort, sort of thing, resting on a foundation of common values and going all the way up to the person in charge. And John was very big on uh, a, a commander, commander, subordinate, leader, uh, follower sort of sort of a relationship um, in fact, it's the only really kind of organization that he talks about. Although he doesn't say it has the same person has to be the leader all the you know, all the time. He talks about uh, uh, essentially the person who assigns the task and the person who has the responsibility of carrying the task out, um, and, and those sorts of uh, you know in those sorts of ways. But without this this common values, common culture, common doctrine, common view of what the current situation is, uh, then you have to start uh, giving very, very explicit instructions on people on what to do. And that's slow. And also because it's explicit, it limits their ability to use their creativity and uh, initiative. Uh, so they go out and they don't see a deer, but they find that they find a woolly mammoth. You know, well, what should they do? Should they engage the mammoth and go back for for help? Should they leave it alone and continue hunting for deer? You know, how do you make those kinds of uh, of decisions? That all got to be thought and worked out beforehand. So what what this all boils down to is you have multiple groups out there. The group that operates the best according to these sorts of principles is going to be the more effective. It's going to find more food. It's going to be better protected against. Uh, 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 actions of other groups for example be better able to deal with exigencies of, of nature avalanches waterfalls that you know or you know whatever things that happen to them along the way than groups that uh, that don't operate like this because groups that don't operate like this their internal friction will build up their ability to select effective actions particularly select them very rapidly uh, while there's still time for them to be effective will be degraded that's that's Organic design in a very large, very large, excuse me, nutshell. Um, I think it helps when you're in a company to think of that same same sort of thing. Now, in a company, we don't have the ability, perhaps, to uh, manipulate values like the military does. the military, will throw you in a boot camp for 15 weeks, and uh, and they can they can exercise some amount of control over your uh, over your um, your moral code. They can they can uh, um, they can get behaviors out of you very, very quickly if they, uh, you know, if, they, if, if they do it right. Stealing stuff from your bunk mates, for example, uh, usually if it works out, it right, only, only has to happen one time and everybody, everybody sort of gets the message, for example.
0: And, and I think that perhaps the, the surprising thing for people when they go through um, organic design, when it, when, it, when it officially is really about command and control, which I think is a view that people have of the military, is that Boyd comes out and focuses on instead of command and control, we should have appreciation and leadership, uh-huh. um, which again is very much more values based than, um, and the whole thing. And I think just it's one of the things that he talks about you know, appreciation as part of leadership must provide assessment of what's being done in a clear, and unambiguous way. And in this sense, appreciation must not interact nor interfere with the system, but must discern the character and nature of what's being done about it. Um, and it talks about the interference that a leader can have coming in and, and changing what it is that people are doing. So the leader never gets a view of what's actually happening. Um, and it talks about leadership giving directions in terms of what's, what's to be done in a clear and ambiguous way um, and enact with, interact with the system to shape the character or nature of that system in order to realize um, what's to be done. Um, and I think you get some definitions at the end where it says appreciation refers to the recognition of worth or value. Clear perception, understanding, comprehension, discernment, and leadership implies the art of inspiring people to enthusiastically take action towards the achievement of uncommon goals,
1: or even common goals. I took, I took uh, uh, you know, exception with John for that one. but He said, "Yeah, well, you know what I mean. Your common goals are easy. I said, no, they're not." You know another philosophy, if if you have uncommon goals, is make them common goals, which is what the Sharpenburg principle does. Is, is is it converts essentially uncommon goals into into a, an overall appreciation of what the common goals are. Uh, so what he says is right, but it's but I think it's it's too limited. It's uh, what he's thinking about there is a formulation of what sometimes called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Um, the Heisenberg principle itself, of course, is from is from physics. But the actual idea of it, if you go back and uh, and do a little research on the idea, it's that observing a uh, anything uh, has the potential to change it. <coughs> the, the Niels Bohr formulation of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle basically is. Uh, observing a, uh, a particle gets small enough, there's no way to observe it precisely because to observe it more precisely, you need a shorter and shorter wavelength, but that means higher and higher energy, which has more and more potential to move, to move the particle. But it was a more general principle in that in general, Observing anything has the potential to uh, to change it. You say, well, you know, does 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 observing Jupiter have the potential to change it? And the answer is, what does that have to do with anything? But consider this: you're a leader. You're a military leader. You have the authority to order people uh, out on on uh, missions where they may well get wounded or killed. Uh, you control promotions. You can have people court-martialed and shot. So. When people are are working in their area and doing their thing and all of a sudden you walk into it, don't you think that changes the situation quite a bit? All of a sudden, you know, the beer bottle gets gets put away. Uh, if you remember the famous scene from Animal House where Dean Vern Wormer walks in, uh, uh, people straighten up, they straighten their collars, you know, uh, all of a sudden they start saluting each other. They salute you, yes, sir, and all that. And you know full well, as soon as you leave, you give yourself five minutes to make sure you're not coming back. They look, okay, he's gone. It's going to kind of revert back to, uh, to normal. Um, that may be a little extreme case, but even in a company, when, when the CEO or a vice president, somebody who has the power to, to seriously influence your well-being shows up, you react accordingly. Well,
0: I think, and, I think it's, there's, a, there's a joke that, the, um, that people think that, 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 that you know, the queen goes around the country thinking that everywhere smells of fresh paint and new carpet. Um, but also, I think as well, you know, come somewhat now in the news with, um, with the situation in Afghanistan, there was clearly things that people were being told in a leadership position that wasn't true for people on the ground, because otherwise you couldn't have got such a, such a change. Right. And I know there's my son got me watching a a daft um, Netflix series over the, over lockdown of designated survivor um, of the guy who becomes, he becomes president, you know, he's the last remaining member of Congress. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: They have a principle and it's like, well, how do you get out of, you know, the president only leaves, you know, at the white house in one of two ways, one with, I think 13 cars and however many people around him are in a baseball cap out the back door. Um, And there's this whole thing as a leader is is how can you make sure that you fully understand what's going on? And I think now especially is coming back as we're coming out of of, hopefully restrictions um, is understanding what's really happening on the ground, what's happening for your customers, in what way have your priorities shifted and what way have your customers priorities shifted or or your consumers priorities so that you can really get in and appreciate and, and see clearly what, what it is that's going on so that you can discern more effectively and make better decisions and better choices for your organization.
1: Yeah, you so you put your finger exactly on the, uh, you know, on the problem. Now, the, the, only, the only small thing that's left over is how do you do it? Um, and what I, what I don't see in a lot of companies is a lot of creative thought, a lot of conceptual spiral type of activity going into, okay, how do you actually... Uh, and it's not so much, for example, what customers want or even what customers need, it's what will customers buy.
0: Yeah, and, it's even better.
1: Yeah, that's why, for appreciation, if you substituted spits and give you a I think you'd be very, very, very close uh, to what John has in, in mind. Uh, for example, to go back to the military, if you are a, say, a battalion commander in the American Army, that'd be a lieutenant colonel as a, as a general rule, commanding maybe a thousand people uh and you walk into a uh a barracks you go out and observe training very 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 hard to pull the wool over your eyes very hard to bs you and the reason is simply is that you you were there yourself at one time. You start off in the military. Uh, in many militaries, you have to start off as a as a private and then and then be selected for officer after a certain period of um, of time in in the enlisted ranks. The U.S. military, of course, is not that way. You can be commissioned via commissioning programs, ROTC, West Point, that sort of thing. Uh, technically, during some of that period in there, you are a very you are a junior enlisted person for pay purposes, but. But in fact, you're, you're, you're not really experiencing what the enlisted go through. But having said all that, you come in as a second lieutenant anyway. You know, despite this four years, you don't know screw all. If you were smart, you learned one thing, and that is Listen to your senior NCO. And, uh, and if you show appreciation to them, perhaps they will, they will take you under their wing and uh, uh, keep you out of trouble. But having then been, been a platoon leader and then a company commander, maybe a company exo, company commander, and then serving on a battalion staff, by the time you get to lieutenant colonel in about 15, 16 years, you, you've pretty much seen all this stuff because you were the one doing it at one time or another. And saying, you know, it's just really hard to pull the wool over somebody's ass who's been, who, who came up through the same system you did and knows exactly what you're up to. Companies, I, I, to me, don't take enough advantage of that. Uh, uh, it's quite, in fact, one of the several companies I work with, including large aerospace companies, took, took great uh, pride in taking their, their, their senior managers uh, and moving them around into different positions in order to, quote, broaden their expertise. Well, it broadened their expertise somewhat, but basically meant that for a while they long, maybe even the whole year or two they're in, that got a manager had no clue what they were doing. Uh, there's a principle of the Toyota production system. Uh, remember which one I, uh, uh, okay. It's, it roughly translates into go and see for yourself. And I apologize that I don't remember the Japanese right at the moment which means basically get out on the factory floor, get your hands dirty, you know, see what's going on out on the line. Um, okay, I worked in a factory environment for a, a large American aerospace company for about 15 years. Other than the very small number of people who truly were production executives, spent their entire career in, in operations and production there wasn't another executive in in that company including the president that could go out on the floor and have the foggiest clue what they were actually seeing mm-hmm. and furthermore when they went out on the clue the clue they had the queen's the queen's uh you know garden and uh, a perfume problem so it was, it was totally worth this um I, I, oh you remember the other thing something jinsetsu Oh well, anyway, um, those that are the familiar with the toilet the system will recognize it. So if you're going to go and see for yourself, you have to understand what it is that you're seeing. And the way you understand what you're seeing is basically having been there and done it at some point of your um, of your career. In other words, you've built finger spits and do until you have finger spits and food for something, you really cannot appreciate it. Yeah. And so there's a lot of subtlety in that uh, in that boy thing, leadership and appreciation. Uh, you know how can you really how can you really appreciate it? You really have to know it. Well, senior commanders in theory will know it because they were junior commanders at one point. So they've had that experience uh and uh and so they are able to come up with some kind of interpretation uh, for what it's worth upon Manstein mentions this often in his book lost victories that you got to take lost victories with a humongous grain of salt but having said all of that a lot of what he says in there is kind of politically neutral and i think has quite a bit of validity to it and those sorts of things how you actually form an appreciation uh, he would go out on the front lines not so much to interfere but he wanted to see look at his people's eyes and that he wanted prisoners when they'd been captured to be brought straight to him so that he could he could look in their eyes because he had fought in World War I and he had, he had actually had some experience in, in Spain. I'm not sure, but he had enough experience to be able to have a feel as to whether or not they were getting near the breaking point, which is very important of whether you're going to order the operation to continue or it's time to break it off. So he had to know kind of which side was going to break first. And he got that through appreciation, through finger spits and get fooled for being right on the front line. The way he got that was having having been there and done that through several years of war, and then you know having been in World War One. Mm-hmm. So leadership appreciation extremely important, but there's a lot of subtleties involved. And uh, actually, the leadership part is really, in a sense, the easiest one because basically what that is is uh, is uh, putting on a performance, acting. And Boyd mentioned a couple, that, and I put in my book a couple of instances of that, of where the German generals would actually practice their leadership skills on their on their subordinates, on each other. You know how to make that patent type speech when it, you know when when you needed to make it, and how to be bombastic. But but at other times, be very quiet and listen, and be reinforcing and rewarded. And these are skills that have to be learned and be practiced. And the Germans did a really good job of that, all the way up to the top, a very, very, very famous series of pictures, which you can find out on the Internet, of Hitler posing before his photographer in his, famous, in his speeches, you know, and he's getting pictures taken by a uh, uh, bias photographer, Heinrich Hoffmann, I think the guy's name was. Uh, and, he, and he would study them, and he would, and he would practice these, these gestures and position, positions over and over again until he got them right. And then he would go to Nuremberg or, or other party things and, uh, and 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 spring them on the uh, public, but only after he had practiced them. So um, I think there's a, and, that, and that's what Boyd's talking about, the leadership skills, which you actively do to influence uh, the organization. Now, on the appreciation side, to come back to that for just a second, John recommended a technique that Martin Van crevel first uh, well he, he got it from Martin Van Cross. It's I, th- I think it's the first place that Boyd ran across it in Moyd's in Ben in Prevett's in book Command and War, uh, where he's talking about a thing called a directed telescope, um, where he, he basically talks about the commanders having members of their staff embedded out in the organizations, feeding information, um, uh, information back. And everybody says, well, isn't that spying on your own people? Well, in a way, I guess it is. On the other hand, everybody knew who these people were. Uh, it's not like they showed up pretending to be cooks, but actually were spies for the thing. You know, they're from the staff, they're down, and, uh, and they knew it was their job, these guys' job, to report, to report back. But you know,
0: and, and I think Chuck, one of the, the key thing there, and I've, I mean, I've, I've had some approaches where, where I've done that, and, and it's like, well, actually, so I'm, I couldn't be in the space um, myself. And so you, you send someone who's trusted, who has that, that, what you were talking about, the Einheit or the interests of the company at heart. And so in that sense, they can establish a trust with, with people on the, on the floor. The other approach is you spend so much time on the floor that people forget that you're there and then they start to behave naturally. But that in itself is a massive time investment. And unless it's a small business, you're just not able, you're just not able to do that. Um, but it is absolutely crucial that you've got, that anybody in a leadership position has got lines of command with people who will tell you the truth um and it's agreed and, and they're not going to get punished for it and i think that as a leader it's one of those it's one of the challenges of you as a leader isn't it of, of being told exactly what you don't want to hear and still rewarding the person and especially rewarding the person for for giving you that that massive bucket of cold water that that you didn't want because it's now you know you, you know that your plans are now all messed
1: up no it's very important and the the, the trick is having the splits in your tool to realize when you're being told the truth or when you're being told what you want to hear, which is we talked about yesterday. Yeah. Logically just makes you feel, makes you feel better. Uh, the, uh, the other, and you raised an interesting point there. The things that you learn through this directed telescope, you can never use for disciplinary purposes. And boy, was very, very explicit on that. Uh, so if you, if you learn of a problem down in there, uh, you then have to verify that problem through, norm, through your regular channels somehow or another. Uh, can be something as subtle as calling the commander, that person's commander said, you know, I have a feeling something is not right over there because blankly such and such and such, check it out and send me a report. Uh, or you could have your inspector general go at that point and conduct an official investigation and then report back to you. Uh, but you've got to learn it through, through your established channels to take disciplinary action. This idea of leadership and appreciation sounds so simple, but there's lots and lots of subtleties when it actually come to putting it into practice. The important thing is that people recognize that, that that's what we're trying to do, and then start experimenting with it and trying it and learning about it and talking to people that operate this way, uh, and uh, and then uh, you know try to try putting it into practice. Um, and I think to me that's the beauty of the org is the organic design. Uh, for command and control. Of course, that's a term he borrowed from the American architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, and I never, I always meant to ask him, he completed this briefing when I was out doing other other things, but I always wanted to ask him what in the world, you know, did he really, did he really intend to uh, 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 have some connection with Frank Lloyd Wright's School of Organic Design? And um, I never got a chance to, <laughs> so. Anyway, but it's as opposed to an artificial command and control system imposed from the top, from the top down. Of course, but you know
0: it, it matches the, the thing that he says when he talks about it being organic and and an element of relational was was a quote that I got from um, from Watts's Dow the water cost Way, um, wow. and, and it, there's, there's a there's a there's a section in it um, is it to see the so that what we are beginning to get here is that the, the view of the universe, which is organic and relational, not a mechanism, artifact or creation, mm-hmm. and by no means analogous to a political or military hierarchy in which there is a supreme commander. Mm-hmm. And The thing that, that stands out for me around appreciation and leadership being, being the, the antidote or the superior a- approach than, than command and control is that it does acknowledge the, the organic nature and the interactive nature. That like the, actually you want an interactive nature, Um, For your organization, because the danger is if you take a a traditional command and control approach, then you then become isolated from information and from what's really going on. And I think that's what, you know, what we need to to do and all the stuff he talks about, whether it's the the focus and direction, the adaptability, um, you know, the security, the insight and vision that is essential for running an organization. All that comes through is the way in which you're able to integrate yourself as a leader into the organization and the people in the organization see you as an integral part of it so that they include you in things rather than exclude you and isolate you.
1: No, that's, that's absolutely correct. Incidentally, uh, the Japanese for going and see for yourself is genchi uh, genbutsu. Uh, and it's extremely, extremely important principle, but the important thing is to ask yourself, how can you do it? <laughs> and it's not just on the factory floor, if you in, anywhere in your organization, if you're trying to, to sense, to appreciate how well that it's, uh, it's working how would you know and the uh, Japanese have a little thing Toyota does called the uh, the Ono Circle O-H-N-O from Taichi Ono Mm. where you you draw a circle uh, somewhere out in the factory and you stand there and close your eyes and you just you just listen and if you really understand how the factory is supposed to be working you know what a properly functioning uh, you know pull driven Toyota type factory is supposed to sound like and uh and you can kind of sit there and and appreciate it uh uh and uh and learn a lot more tremendously more from that than you would from a a whole stack of reports or people coming and telling you stuff through um you know through the filter of their own uh, experiences and desires Mm. very very important principle and really is is the function is that the the bedrock of that, of the appreciation side of command and control. The control side of it being that multi-layered thing we're talking about starting with values and working all the way up to assigning a common orientation into which you can assign missions via Auftrags Taktik, uh, which is uh, you know, that part of the climate where you, where you give somebody a, um, a mission, what it is they're supposed to accomplish you negotiate with them. As you said, it's a two-sided sort of thing over the resources, the boundaries um, and any other conditions you want. But once the uh, mission is agreed by both sides, then as John said, the commander has every right to expect it will be carried out. Um, and uh, But you can only u- do that once you have this whole this whole kind of layer cake there, that is your real command, and co- your, real, your real command system, I guess I should say, um uh, well, control system too people uh, are are using. remember the whole idea of this is that people will use, they'll fire up, as you say, their their, uh, creativity and initiative. And then the function of, of the various levels of leadership is to harmonize all that activity down there to accomplish the objectives of the organization. So there's two things, firing it up and harmonizing it to accomplish it. And the third thing, which is not stated, is that appreciation, which is, okay, how do you know it's working? and uh, and then making changes as necessary. So it's a very, very, very fascinating uh, uh, approach that, that John came up with. Certainly didn't invent it. You can find it successful organizations down through history have used something something like it. Uh, but he's one of the first, I think, to codify it in such, such easy to understand terms hmm.
0: and That And I know, I know we're going to, uh, we'll, we'll move on soon into patterns of conflict. But one of the things that I think when I went back on this, um, is that one of the areas that's influenced the most, possibly uh, in Bo's work, is the area when he talks in organic design about how you create the what I would see as a, as a shared view or shared orientation in the group and how essential it is. Because I spent three years working on that in esports in a game where it was absolutely crucial that people had a shared view over what could happen in game and if it if X or Y happened, how they would react and then respond as a team. Because if they didn't have that then the team would would miss opportunities and and get under get under trouble and I think it's one of those areas and it's like getting people in a situation and working through trouble as you were talking in last time about being in a stressful situation together and seeing that each person is trusted and trust you know trustworthy in the sense of their their skill at what they're doing but also that they'll look out for the group so they have that that you know that focus on cohesion and and mutual trust and trustworthiness that that we most need, and I think that's one of the things that is essential for us to be doing back in the office together when we can get there, is to focus on those areas to bring everyone back so we can recreate that shared view of of how to run a business through through lockdown and whether it comes again or whatever. Then it's you know it's it's just it's just creating a shared view once more.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. Common, common, uh, with a similar implicit orientation. Boyd called it. A common outlook is another term he used for it. He also used the term overall mind, time, space, scheme, uh, (laughs) which I really liked. And that's from Patterns of Complex. Very uh, very
0: good when you're talking to kids, that one, right?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, but they all describe what you just said. You know, given that we have the common values and we have a shared doctrine and we have this, this, this common culture that values these things, like talks tactique, and uh, sharepunk, behind the kite, all that kind of good stuff. Then if we have a common orientation, the or the, to an extent, the, or, uh, the organization run itself, uh, all you really need from that point is somebody on top making sure that it's that the, that the, the, the culture and climate is is healthy exercising some uh, some leadership which may include nothing more than pats on the back and uh if everything is going extremely well uh and little little tweaks here and there where they're uh, you know where they're needed but there's a big difference between kind of keeping a, a well functioning machine running and trying to be that machine yourself which is what the top down mm-hmm. top control system does so that you yeah. know just exactly what you were saying is exactly yeah. correct
0: so, so we're moving now into patterns of conflict, which I think is Boyd's most famous um, presentation and work. Nearly two hundred slides, um, mm. and the the thing that, if you if you were gonna if you wanted to to win a war somewhere, then I think that would be um, required reading for anybody. But just given that that our listeners are are typically non-combatants, um, I'm just keen for us to take the the whole area about if we do get into a conflict situation, because I think a way I see Boyd is. By starting, you know, your advice of starting backwards is that we're in a is how to win in a in a competitive but non-lethal situation, all the way to how do you win when things get really testy, which for us in business would be if you've got a massive price war or a competitive situation or you know, or things like that, where it is a it's approaching a zero sum game. Um, so what is it with that in mind of what what is it that that were the key ideas and, and aims of patterns of conflict that could that could help our listeners?
1: That's a very good uh, thing, It it might not, heard at this point very, very quickly Review what what we just did. We said essence of winning and losing was about having these actions that we can apply uh, intuitively, he called it implicit, but intuitively in order to influence, the uh, shape the current situation and if necessary, react to it. And he said, in order to do this, you need this OODA loop thing, which consists of the implicit guidance and control of the actions we already have and some sort of a circular developmental process to create new actions uh, or new ways to employ our existing actions uh, uh, as not only as necessary, but life is essentially, and this is in the next briefing now, life really is the creation of novelty, doing the same thing over and over again, a stasis, which leads to, leads to death. Uh, entropy builds up now uh, etc so really life is all about novelty and i think that's what he was trying to to get at with that last chart there where he had the conceptual spiral of a b and c d e and f etc 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 is that uh in order to stay to stay functioning healthy happy whatever we have to continue uh creating and and, and dealing with novelty all right that's that's um, conceptual design um, um strategic game is is really about think of think of all human activity on on three levels you may be able to think of others but but the three levels of moral which are the forces that hold a group together which talk about what it is we should be doing and why what's the right thing to do these are kind of these are moral sorts of forces the the mental slash maneuver um uh element which which is where we get into operating inside the OODA loop the various strategies stratagems that we use uh, in, in business, that would be simple things like, do we go for a low-cost strategy? Are we going for a differentiation type strategy? That that sort of thing. And then down at the actual physical level, um, which product? what type of production system do we use? And we see people getting in lots and lots of trouble today because we we, we uh, drew our, our supply lines all the way back into China and not realize, well, yeah, it's really easy to disrupt when you have a long supply chain, particularly when you have different political systems on, on each end. Um, and they blamed that on the Toyota production system, but Toyota went to great lengths in its uh, original design to sure that didn't happen. And reasons readers that are familiar with it may know some of those. And essentially they they would have suppliers have their their uh, shops right next to the Toyota factory to where he, they could actually even hand their stuff through so the supply line disruptions were intended uh, to be minimized.
0: Yeah, I don't know I mean you'd have in, in Japan you'd have local you'd have local congestion. Um, because there were, there were so many more trucks on the road keeping things just in time, but yeah, that was all about creating a, a sustainable ecosystem or environment in which you could be successful,
1: right? That can, yeah, yeah, that can be handled. I mean, you can you can shift, there are other ways to transport. I mean, that's that's a physical problem requiring a little bit of cleverness. You don't have enough road space. Maybe you need more roads or maybe you need different ways to get uh, supplies or maybe you need some positioning of moving your suppliers, which again, is a thing that they do closer to your factories or whatever. That's a problem that I think can be solved, again, with the conceptual spiral thing. with But a, a supply chain that goes through the Suez Canal heading back to China uh, has, in, in, in addition to the congestion problem, particularly going through the Suez Canal, there's all kinds of other problems involved. And every one of those is, is, a, is a single point failure. So, um, but, but the bean counters like it initially because it saved lots of money. And you may remember James um, was it Jack Wilch? Um, part of his thing it mandated that his suppliers come up with a sourcing plan and every year he would get goals for them how much of their uh, of their uh, production they needed to outsource all to keep costs down and short term it was quite successful of course uh, there's a very good book now out now in the fall of GE though that that uh, that points out the uh, you know eventually the uh, the problems caught up with it. So as now, GE is not even in Fortune. Uh, it's not. It's not even in the Dow Industrials anymore. Still in the Fortune 500, but but not uh, not one of the Dow Industrials. Uh, so anyway, that gets us back then to okay. Then how do you know if it's all working? How do you tweak it? That's organic design, and that then brings us back to okay. Uh, patterns of conflict. Well, patterns of conflict is sort of the the seed corn. It's it's poor John got a lot of these ideas from that he later then put together the, the snowmobiles uh, of these other things, organic design, strategic game, those should actually be seen as, as uh, a, a vehicles out on your snowmobile showroom floor. They are the sort of the, the finished product of the process that, that he went through in Patterns of Conflict. And he makes that very explicit in the abstract, in the second, the second paragraph of the abstract, uh, which he says, uh, okay, we have this analytical and synthetic process, and each of the briefings in the discourse represents that process uh, at work. And you can see that very clearly. And the way, I think the, the, the best way to read patterns of conflict, whether you know anything about the military or not, is you can see where Boyd is going through and an individual battles and individual commanders. What he's really doing is trying to pick out things that worked. And he's trying to pick out things that worked on more than one occasion what he called invariance. In other words, if he saw the same principle, work for Alexander the Great, worked for the Romans, worked for Genghis Khan, worked for a Napoleon, worked for Wellington, you know, um, and then later on, although he didn't, you know, and. and and of course work for the germans and, and in, his, in his oral briefings he would talk about vietnam so you see the same sorts of things work over and over and over again from sun Tzu all the way to um to von Manstein. then you can say aha you know now you know now we're on something now we've got since a mechanism here uh, that we can use we can use that mechanism then to build other things with now you understand, for example, how internal combustion engines work. So now you can stick it in your snowmobile. That's the real purpose of patterns of conflict. And right at the end of patterns, this is kind of interesting, um, chart 184, he he, built, he has this whole thing of six appropriate uh, uh, bits and pieces, he calls them. A lot of people, by the way, and I really can't say that I blame them because it's right at the end, overlook this end of, uh, of patterns of conflict from about, Oh, really about the epilogue, but you could start with the wrap up chart 174, but right at the end of that, he's talking about how people misuse principles and he said, they tend to be kind of after action things or some sort of checklist where if you follow it, you can't be blamed, even if you lost, but you followed the rules. Um, And he said that that if you're really going to be in a competitive situation, you're really going to want a group of people who can operate effectively under conditions of uh, uncertainty and stress and influence and shape those conditions as well as just react to them, then here's some things that you might do. Now, clearly, his are... Are sort of war-related, but you can you can think if you try to develop a little deeper understanding of them, you can think them through. The first one was compress on time and stretch out stretch out adversary time. Well, you know what does that mean? Uh, and here he's, of course, looking at time. He's talking about really our our perception of time, our ability to 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 make things happen uh, when we wanted them to happen, or as I like to say, make them happen while there's still time for them to do some good and do it in a way that the, your your adversary then has to respond to you and is always late well of course one thing in the commercial world and again we think of a um, thing of, of, of apple amazon any of the uh, the big tech companies nowadays they may not have been the, the first ones out with the product but they tended to be the first ones out with products people wanted to buy so for example G- google obviously didn't invent the search engine um, if you've been around the computer industry long enough and and i'm sure uh, you have you may remember search engines like what was it Alta vista it was a really good one back from the good old good old days and uh, there was another one oh having to do with spiders or something web crawlers and that kind of thing and they all had the thing that they got to be very big very, very difficult to use they didn't re- really return reliable results or they were slow and so what Google did was they really came out with a search engine that, that just, just worked better than anybody else. It was easier to use. Uh, they had a little bit of humor about them with their little Google logo and their little Google cartoons and that sort of thing. And over time, they basically drove everybody else out of business. I, I think Microsoft still has Bing, but um, I, and I understand it was quite good. But I have to tell you, I couldn't tell you the last time I actually used it. So in in business it, it's, it, it operates differently than it does in war. In war, doing something to get a reaction can be good in and of itself. Uh, that's what the idea of a reconnaissance and force is all about. Operating at a high tempo just to confuse the opponent so that then you can, using your finger spits and your fool, find a way to exploit that confusion is, uh, is good. Um, again, those of your fans from back in the... Uh, in the 1980s, uh, 79, was it, when it came out. Uh, I might remember the movie Animal House, right at the end of the movie, uh, near the end of the movie, one of the characters, in fact, it was John, the John Belushi character, Bluto comes out and says, What this situation requires is a, a truly stupid, meaningless gesture to be performed on somebody's part. And one of the other guys says, Yeah, we're just the ones to do it. And, and yeah, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, so there are times in war when, when, Operating at a high tempo just to confuse the enemy can be good. May not be quite so true in business. In business, and remember, the idea is uh, get the competitor, get the customer to buy your product. Confusing the customer may or may not be a good idea. Generally, in, in business school, we, we we regard that it's you may want to dislocate the 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 customer's current orientation. I.e., if he's buying from somebody else, you have to. You have to get him off of that and over to buy buy from you but uh, uh doing things just to confuse your customers may m- may not pay off very well if you have a competitor who uh who is um working with a more understandable strategy but that idea of using time and all that is still there the second one generate unequal distributions is basis to focus moral mental physical effort for local superiority and different types of legend uh, leverage. That's maneuver warfare. That is, seems to me, there's not much you can glean out of that one, but I could be wrong. Uh, What you want to do in all these, by the way, is you you don't want to make analogies out of them. What you want to do is develop a deep understanding of the principles behind them, and then take that deep understanding over into your business and see what you can get out of it. So for example, diminish own friction or enemy and magnify magnify adversary friction or enemy friction or entropy entropy just essentially being confusion uh, uh, energy inside the system not available to accomplish the purposes of the system that you I mean you can understand that the less friction you have in your own organization the more smoothly activities uh, have uh, take place the more people are using creativity and initiative and that's translating into products and services that customers will uh, will buy obviously that's good um what you can do to magnify friction outside your environment that's that's difficult to say um and it may be something not, you you don't even want to worry about keep making yourself better and better all the time let everybody follow you is is, uh, is sort of the um kind of a, a standard strategy nowadays but so you have to say well why did why did Boyd want to magnify adversary friction? Well, he wanted to keep the adversary from being able to take effective action in a timely, timely way. And if the adversary is tied up with internal friction, take takes they have a lot of paperwork required, for example, in meetings before they can they can crank out a product. So that their answer to your product is three generations, uh, you know, too late, sort of thing. Kind of like the Microsoft Zoom compared to the to the uh, iPod, the uh, original iPod. And you notice Microsoft never did succeed in developing a viable phone. Um, But it wasn't so much that Apple was pumping up friction inside of of Microsoft, Apple was just doing its thing. And their system was good enough that it got, and apparently got really good there uh, uh, in the uh, early 90s. Um, early two thousands, uh, or the, I guess in the, the mid late nineties, after Jobs came I mean, back. Chad, I
0: think some of the things I, it may be some of the elements that I got from um, from from certain to win with that is it and if we're talking about so instead of it being a, a zero sum game versus an opponent because I look at I look at the advice that that John's got on on slide one eight five and really really suitable for sporting competition. So that and the way in which, you know, just direct I and mean, use that, I've used that stuff in, you know, working with teams myself and especially competitive teams, right? And the, the whole thing, one of the things when you talk about, about Apple, and I know in your book, you talk about the great historical example of Honda, Yamaha, is yeah. that the way in which can your, can your stuff start to shape expectations in the marketplace, which are easier, increasingly easier for you to meet those expectations, but more difficult for your opponent. Um, and you shape, you start to shake the market because customers really resonate with the approach that you're taking. And likewise, you have that synergistic effect of responding to consumers and then they then respond to your approach as well. Um, and I think in that sense, it's, it's a way thing about you can you diminish your own friction and and then diminish, you know, diminish the friction of your customers and, you, and your consumers, right?
1: yeah but it's happening as you might say organically, whereas in more you there are specific there are things that you can try to do to specifically magnify their uh, you know their friction. Um, um, and um, espionage, for example, which is typically frowned upon in the commercial world, but it can be very, very good for pumping up friction on the other side. If, particularly if you uh, if you make them turn uh, and and, and uh, uh, start witch hunts inside their own uh, organization. Many many examples of that, incidentally, out in the uh, out in the world of of war, where by planning agents, you get people suspicious of their own of their own organization. Sun Tzu talks about that. Uh, in Chapter 13 of The Art of War. But you're right. If if you look at the last one, amplify our spirit and strength and attract the uncommitted, if you figure the customer... I'll forget about the adversaries for a minute. Attract the uncommitted. If you figure customers are essentially uncommitted, they can... At least, when their contractors buy from somebody else, if they want, um, yeah, that's 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 basically what it's all about. So, if that's the case, then you can you can read through Boyd's stuff and say, okay, what are some ways that he comes up with for amplifying our spirit and strength? Well, that uh, that Creek uh, uh, climate, the uh, operating through Einheit, Alphox, Topkick, and Schwerpunkt, just invariably pumps up morale because now people can take charge of their own of their own jobs. They have areas of responsibility that they are. Within the limits of law and and company policy, totally responsible for carrying out and figuring out ways to do it. Typically, this uh, you know this results in a huge uh, increase in in morale. And if that and you, way you can test it is when the manager who operates that way gets replaced by a micromanager. See how uh, see what happens to the morale in that organization. Uh, so uh yeah and that's so without going into all of the battle stuff and all that these are the ideas that john plucked out of studying um essentially large-scale uh, land combat over 2500 years of things that seem to work over and over and over again so and, and,
0: and that and that for me is, is is if we're in that situation so for example if if i'm in a crisis so just let me let me just pull up um, 185 i've just gone to and um, so, the whole thing about what's my relationship with the time of how things are happening? And I think if we look at you know what happened with the um, with the lockdown and everything else and stuff, is that is that what happened for us, It wasn't the adversary that was doing it, but it was a crisis time that was that was causing the issue, is how can I find get more time so we can anticipate and react to challenges that are coming our way? Um, and the other thing, and to make sure knowing that in a crisis, the pressure comes, in an unusual part of the organisation that's unaccustomed to that level of pressure, and so in that sense is, am I able to have resources in place and available so that if there is a crisis hits in one part of the business, we can move our resources over to that part of the organisation to deal with the crisis as it's as it's happening and as it as it works through the organisation. And likewise, I think one of the things that we were talking about just on the last organic. Um, Designing is a whole thing about one of the areas of friction is, is the biggest area of friction in organisations is relationships, right? So the question mm. is, what can we do in, ante- in before that in order to have a, a positive relationship? So we make we remain as a cohesive force. And and I think in that sense is is and also looking looking ahead is how can we can we is it possible for us to realistically anticipate some of the challenges that are likely to come as we hopefully recover from um from COVID and lockdowns um so that we're all we're, we are better prepared and we've got better control of the time and space that we need in order to do things. And um, Chet, could I can I um, ask if we could look at slide I think it's one four five um, theme for vitality and growth.
1: Oh yes, As, essentially that is the uh, the culminating slide of um, of patterns of conflict because if you look at what happens after that, uh, it's, um, um, examples of war, or the wrap-up, uh, and, the, and the epilogue. So yeah, it's a very good one to look at. And so,
0: yeah. so uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll provide a link for people so they can not just get the whole presentation, but we can maybe even bring this up on up on screen. Is it, so it starts with a unifying vision. Is a grand ideal, an overarching theme on noble philosophy that represents a coherent paradigm within which individuals, as well as societies, can shape and adapt to unfolding circumstances. It offers a way to expose flaws of competing on adversarial systems and it and it's one of the things that as, as, as a, you know as, as humans we've missed the whole vision of how this could have been seen um and how we could have improved that you know and the aim of all of this is to improve the fitness as boy said of an organic whole to shape and expand influence and he said the ingredients needed to pursue a vision insight initiative adaptability harmony and also, you, you talk and and say in later presentations, agility was also added. So those things of, of insight, initiative, adaptability, harmony, and agility, I think, is. Um,
1: that's true. Isle high is is what Boyd called it. Yeah, yeah insight orientation, harmony, agility, and initiative. And it's see, Boyd got into Boyd got into a little bit of trouble. With this, uh, with this chart, because it's not clear whether it applies to, it should apply to organizations. I mean, that's, that's, that's clear. But when you look at things, the way he defined orientation itself, uh, it only applies to, uh, to individuals. Um, and so what we had to do here, uh, many years after Boyd died, is go back and look at what I had from him. And I had some notes from him, by the way, on this chart. And so what I did was I essentially replaced the individual orientation, that um, the process of, um, <clears throat> of um, uh, see how does he define it? Uh, back in the back of organic design, he comes up with a definition for individual orientation, uh, a many sided cross, uh, cross-referencing process of, um, I remember how, how, how all that goes through there. Uh, and that and that's a good definition for uh, for individuals. But if it's going kind to of apply to groups, what I did was I replaced that with the common outlook. In other words, a similar implicit orientation. Uh, the, the definition of harmony that he comes here is quite interesting. Power to perceive or create interaction of apparently disconnected events or entities in a connected way. Uh, he actually originally floats that idea of harmony a few charts uh, previously but before that by harmony he's used more what i call the kumbaya you know let's all let's all get along together and don't cause a, don't cause problems um uh, d- definition of harmony when this definition of harmony here he's basically somewhere along the line run across the, the zen concept of uh of interdependent de- de- uh, determination, the principle of non duality, in other words, the ability to resolve paradoxes. Uh, and, uh, and that's, uh, it's, you can tell you're doing this thing right when you're starting to, and you can tell when you're starting to develop deep understanding, when you can start resolving uh, um, uh, uh, apparent paradoxes, apparent trade offs, such as the trade off between command and control and initiative that one's very, very, very common. More and more command and control kills initiative. Too much initiative is hurting cats and you can't control it. But if you use uh, Boyd's command and control structure from organic design, particularly if you use that climate that then, then involves Einheit, and Schwerpunkt and Auftrags, Takti, then you can have both command and control. And, and you can accomplish the purpose of the organization and you can have lots of initiative. So it's that, that breaking trade-offs in there is what Harmony is. So this version right here is the one that 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 your, your, your reader should use, and it's available in the version of Patterns of Conflict that's out on, on Certain to Win. Uh, Boyd never went back and revised the full version of Patterns of Conflict after 1986, uh, because he lost his typist. Um, and <laughs> She graduated and went on to other things and he didn't type himself, so, but he would make we would make pin and eat changes based on late night phone calls from John. So this is, this is definitely the, the version of the theme for vitality and growth that he wanted. And notice that it includes both the ability to, uh, to uh, influence other people as well as the ability to uh, um, you know, create that, that, um, that internal, um, and I used the word harmony here in the original sense, uh, that he talks about in chart 185. So, really so, that, has, so go on, Go
0: ahead. So that so that just to just to make sure. So people that are, are not seeing the slide but, but are listening in. So that for so the ingredients for so insight, it defined as ability to appear into it and discern the inner nature of and working of things. Initiative, the internal drive to think and take action without being urged, adaptability, the power to adjust or change in order to cope with new or unforeseen circumstances and harmony the power to perceive or create interactions of apparently disconnected events or entities in a connected way.
1: Um, Yeah, as I say, I don't use that for that point uh, thing because Boyd Boyd revised that. but uh, yeah, and the ability to have a common, a common outlook, similar implicit orientation. Insight, by the way, when you first read it, it seems like it's not saying anything, or wouldn't it be great to peer into and discern the inner nature of working of things? But in fact, it's an ancient, ancient concept, it goes back at least several thousand years, and in fact, survives in, uh, in yoga and Zen today as uh, 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 insight meditation. And it's an ability that you can develop. It's closely related to finger to food. Mm. Uh, and gefund, uh, and and it's developed essentially through the conceptual spiral. So it's very, very, very important thing. It also says don't, don't, uh, don't accept your current view of things as being the only one. So you get back into the Toyota idea of, of asking why, you know, down to five levels, the five whys, um, and that's something that every I think every leader, every business leader can uh, you know can employ. It keep keep asking keep searching uh keep probing uh even when you think you understand what's going on uh because there's I say the worst thing that you can do is 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 think you understand you know there is, um it's just because once you think you understand your orientation completely locks up and very very dangerous at some point you have to, you, you have to take action so at that point you think you do understand but uh, being paranoid a lot of humility and uh keeping a questioning uh, uh attitude is absolutely key to employing this theme for vitality and growth mm.
0: so. so Chet, i just want to i'm gonna i'm gonna allow us to move on from um from patterns now um, and i know we've got um destruction and creation left but i also want just to give us time just to look at, at how you applied some of the principles of boyds you know you, the insights and interactions with boyd in your own life and um, and having spoken with Mike Wiley um, about how he got involved with with Boyd, is it he was already there or thereabouts? Um, but working with Boyd accelerated everybody's um, everyone's perspective. Um, so regards to um, to destruction and creation, what is it that would that would that would help our our listeners just on on any key points on that if they were to choose to read it or just the just the lessons for them on that?
1: Well, I strongly. Re- um recommend is that they, again, they go onto my website and download Chuck Spinney's evolutionary epistemology uh, because that, that illustrates uh, in, in some very concrete examples what John is talking about here. Um, and epistemology being the study or the science of how we, uh, of, of knowledge, essentially uh, how we understand things. And, and the the example he uses is our evolution of our understanding of the uh, of the uh, universe, or at least of the solar system and our and our place in the universe, starting with the Ptolemaic system, with the Earth in the in the middle and the various celestial bodies on spheres that rotated around the Earth, and going from that, which actually worked pretty well, incidentally, if you allow for things called epicycles, and he explains what those are. In other words, you can you can use the atomic system to make some very accurate predictions of where the planets are going to be, where uh, when eclipses are going to occur, the phases of the moon, however many years out you want. And the way that we know that the ancients did that was the discovery of the Antikythera mechanism uh, off of the Antikythera Island in Greece, which apparently dates back to right around the turn of uh, the first millennium, in other words, zero, zero or so BC. But it's a mechanism that apparently using the Ptolemaic system of the universe and you and you turn the handle and it shows you where all the celestial objects are going to be. And so it stayed for many, many years. And uh, but then with more and more accurate observations, the discrepancies began to appear and you started having to add more and more epicycles uh, to make it, it became more and more complex. And so Newton eventually looking at data compiled by Tycho Brahe and looking at uh, the uh, various um, um, heliocentric models, you know, came up with his, uh, you know, with his laws of motion and his laws of gravitation, which simplified the whole thing to a uh, a few equations that you can teach to high school algebra students and made more accurate predictions than the uh, Ptolemaic system did. So that went along fine until again, discrepancies began to show up, the Michelson-Morley experiments, for example. And so Einstein came along with relativity, which is essentially an improved version of the Newtonian system, but it makes even more uh, accurate things. So now we can correct for the uh, gravitational influence uh, on the clocks of satellites in orbit, for example, to make GPS actually work. Uh, and uh, so each one, um, you know, our 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 ability, how we understand what's going on in the universe, was by coming up with a model. Eventually, that that, that, that model uh, breaks down as we get more accurate observations. It, it fails to keep up with the with the increasing uh, accuracy of the observations. So then we go through a destruction process. In other words, you, you can't get to Newton by improving. Uh, Ptolemy, it's a it's a completely different view of the universe. But once you have that, then you can start the process with, with with Newton. It goes along, but then more and more and more and more accurate observations. Newton breaks down, and you need Einstein. And so we're we're in the area now where I think Einstein works works well enough for all of our current things. But eventually, if we continue making even more uh, accurate observations. Uh, you know, Einstein's going to break uh, down there'll be some kind of modification we need to do to general relativity. And that's what construction, construction and construction creation says That as a natural process happens in everything that we do where we rely on mental models uh, to make predictions is that at some point our mental models are going to break down and we're going to need new ways of constructing new mental models uh, uh, to allow us to continue to uh, survive on our own terms, operate. Uh, 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 you know, the, uh, 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 I would say uh, increasing independence. Uh, so how do you do that? And that's all destruction creation is really all about. Our mental models are gonna break down, it's inevitable, um, and we're going to need new ways to, uh, to put them back together. Now, one thing I would caution everybody when they're reading destruction and creation is it has this famous three examples from um, a mathematics and um, a physics, Gödel's, Gödel's theorem, Um, and the heisenberg law and the law and the um, second law of thermodynamics he's not in anywhere using those as analogies Uh, what he's doing is he's using and and chuck explains this in evolutionary personality he is in many cases using the original form of those uh, in areas outside of of physics. So for example, we talked about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, uh, originally just said it's essentially in any system, uh, observations of that system, uh, change the system, and more and more precise observations in the system will actually in fact have more and more uh, you know effect on the system. And that's true of any system, not just not just physical systems. Gödel's theorem applies to any logical system that is complex enough to have embedded in it the laws of positive integers, what we call the piano axioms. In other words, if it's if it's complex enough to, to contain elementary mathematics, addition, subtraction, division, the concept of zero, that sort of thing, then uh, questions will uh, arise uh, in that system that are... First, there are two uh, two forms of it. One of them says questions will arise in that uh, things that, that can't be proven to be either true or false. Uh, in other words, it's they can't undecipherability. They can't they can't be just, they can be stated within the system, but they can't be proven in the system. And furthermore, questions will arise in that system that you can demonstrate are true, but you cannot construct a proof for. Uh, and that's truly bizarre. In other words, you can prove that they're true, but you can't prove them. And that's Godel's that's Gödel's theorem, and it did to mathematics what relativity did to physics. <laughs> just basically blew it out of the water. Which thank God, because um, this was all around Godel's theorem was uh, 1930s, answering uh, um, a question that had been raised around the turn of the century. If it had, if Godel's theorem had not been correct, if it had been true that you can prove everything, mathematics would just have died. You know, who cares anymore? And that Bitcoin becomes just, you know, um, a, a very complex form of Sudoku. Uh, but fortunately, it, it, by uh, by blowing it up, it also kept it alive and allowed it to reconstitute itself into the very, very rich uh, subject that it is today, catastrophe theory, you know, complexity and all of that. Uh, and then the, um, uh, and the final one being the law of, th- second law of thermodynamics, which is any, essentially the way he defined any compute in any, closed system um, confusion uh, can only increase and he defined confusion in that sense as being essentially energy available not not available to do work or not available to accomplish the purposes of the system and again true of any system and we certainly see that in uh, closed systems in, uh, in in business more and more and more time gets uh, gets eaten up in in uh, uh, promulgating and enforcing regulations and in having meetings uh, than and actually producing products and services customers want to buy. And that will increase over time unless uh, some outside force comes in and and essentially pushes the entropy back, in which, uh, you basically completely restructure system, get rid of all those old uh, uh, regulations, completely reshape how relationships work inside your company. Extremely, extremely, extremely difficult to do. Very, very few examples that I can think of in large companies where it's ever been carried out successfully, usually at that point, it's easier just to dissolve the company and start over. Uh, but that's how you should, you should read destruction and uh, you know and creation it's about creating mental models and then uh, um realizing at some point they're not going to work as effectively as you want so how do you create you that's it that's destruction and creation in a nutshell
0: and, and i yeah. think that and the, the thing that i took from it is actually is to embrace the mismatch um mm. and and to develop the you know the emotional wherewithal i guess for want of a better phrase to when you know to see that as a as a potential positive and um and even or you know it'll lead to if you if your interest is instead of it being right, but if you're interested is in the, in the truth and seeing what really works then then all those things are on your side of getting beyond the system in which you're working and and finding ways of of seeing how things can make sense and acknowledging that and accepting that you you'll never be able to fully understand what's going on um That's- because there'll always be something beyond your model and beyond your your understanding
1: yeah, and the trick is to know when it's time to. Uh, to quit tweaking your model and try for a new model, because the many mm-hmm. times the correct answer is just well tweak your existing model a little bit. That might be the easiest way to do it. Might well solve yeah. your problem in the uh, in the short one. But like, and you can see that you know in manufacturing again, Toyota being the ultimate case, the Toyota production system is not. A better version of General Motors. It doesn't have a better um, operations uh, control function. It doesn't have bigger computers telling workers what to do, sorts of things. It's a completely different paradigm of how to build things. It truly was the machine that changed the world, to uh, you know, to coin a phrase. And but it took you know it took Japan losing World War II essentially to come up with it. It took several hundred years for the uh, for the system to be finally replaced by the Newtonian. Uh, system starting um, well, who knows when it actually started? Galileo and then uh, Copernicus, uh, Tycho Bray, uh, Kepler—all these people in the in the 1500s, uh, and up until the Principia Mathematica, then came out in the late 1600s. Uh, bef- and then it was a long time after that before it finally became, uh, you know, became accepted. And there are still a few flat earthers around today. I'm so I'm told. I, I guess there are some people that will believe. Anything?
0: <laughs> what can I say? So, so, we've got we've just done a a, a tour of, of of Boyd's work, um, and you have been instrumental not only in in supporting its its creation and, and maintenance, but also you know of carrying that work forward. Um, so, you, your life has been infused with with Boydian principles, and and you can clearly see in the way that you know in, in certain to win and the other writing that you've done um related to boyd that it's like well actually you know you live those principles yourself and i'm i'm just wondering in what way is as as these insights that you've that you established for yourself and worked with boyd on in what way has it contributed to your success in your life
1: that's a really good question i wish i had a really good answer because I, I truthfully tell you that i explicitly not Employed anything that Boyd put into anything in the, in the discourse. The kit uh, trick there perhaps is uh, explicitly, uh, which is where uh, I, I guess in the sense I went back to the same sources that Boyd eventually, uh, you know, originally uh, drew on, even though at the time he was drawing on them, he, made, he wasn't aware of them. Um, and I'm thinking there of the ancient Indian Chinese source. I'm the guy that gave him the book, uh, Gal, the Watercourse Way. If you go to the Chronicle Library, you can see the copy I gave him with my inscription to John in it. Um, And I was influenced by uh, several people at the Pentagon who had studied Sun Tzu and and then had gone back and studied the other texts of of the period, again, including some of the ancient Indian texts. And so I was familiar with the ideas of, of fluidity, of mindfulness, present moment. I can't say I truly understand them. I don't think they're truly understandable think you run into the destruction and creation problem when you get too deep into those guys. But the more that you, that you apply them and think about them and try to use them and all that, perhaps if, nothing, if you don't really understand them, you, you come up with new ways of perhaps uh, incorporating them into your, into your life. And so, when I did my, uh, my diagram of, of the influences on Boyd, way over on the right are all this, is all this this Eastern kind of stuff, what I call the green zone, just because that was the color I had. It was red in one zone, blue in another one, it turned out to be green. Then I remembered the green zone, of course, in Baghdad, and that's not what I was talking about. Anyway, so it was essentially by uh, g- going back to Boyd's original sources and um, uh, even perhaps before he was aware of them and coming up with, with my own ways to, uh, to apply them. And what little bit that I've learned of that i put into a certain win and into the papers on the site. But I, I certainly can't and don't make any claim to having anything nearly as comprehensive or as original or as powerful as what John, uh, you know, what John came up with. But unlike Mike Wally, Mike truly did. Mike was on the maneuver war for a long time before he met John Boyd. Um, and uh, what John did, John provided a, uh, a framework that Mike wasn't aware of, uh, <clears throat> coming from a different source and, and having gone through all of these, uh, all these not just military references, Mike was pretty much aware of all of those, but all these references from other fields that that show up back in both Patterns of Conflict and in his uh, in his uh, accession list at the Marine Corps Library that uh, that that Mike was then basically uh, you know able to use to codify this uh, and come out with the FMFM1 FMFM1 maneuver warfare mm. so since the two work very very closely together uh, I think uh, by the time John met Mike he had pretty much finished patterns of conflict but I think Mike was a a, perhaps a big influence on, um, on John in a, in a uh, maybe in a subtle sense, in things like uh, conceptual spiral. Um, and certainly John came up with the, his OODA loop diagram after he had started working with Mike. I think that's, until then, John had actually briefed it as a circular uh, circular model. Uh, but a number of people, including Gary Klein, had pointed out that that can't, that, that really can't work. Not for controlling actions in a uh, um, fast, you know, fast-moving sort of situation. It's just too slow, and it requires you to skip to skip skip the to go fast. You got to go through orientation very quickly. Well, sometimes orientation just takes a while to work. (laughs) Mm. Uh, And the final version of the loop uh, allows that to it it decouples uh, the the tempo of activity, which is flowing via implicit guidance control, from the the pace that you are quote going through the uh, you know going through the loop so that you can act when action is appropriate uh and not just when you end up back at the action stage on the uh you know on the loop so uh and that was after he met mike so i think uh, uh, now that may have been a profound influence
0: but so looking at your life then just um what would you say would be the principles of the of the success that you've had in your life
1: <laughs> well in that sense uh was just, John was probably a very strong influence on me uh, in the sense of um, you know, you you don't how did he say it he he talked one time one of his things he said about fighter pilots and they've got all these uh, he's got they've got all these uh, these tricks that, that they're going to try and things they're going to use and he said finally every every one of them at the very end of it if nothing else has worked they have this last ditch maneuver they're going to use and John said what do you do when that doesn't work die as we said, don't think in terms of last. If you think of constantly being engaged, trying to influence the environment, trying to come up with new things, uh, and uh, be willing to 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 drop something you've been in love with to try something else. And it since that's that's sort of what I've what I've done. I didn't have one one long career with one organization. That's very similar to your situation, I did have, uh, of course. Uh, 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 30 years in the Air Force, well, Army, and Air Force Reserve, but that was more that was more of a hobby. That was much more fun than it was, uh, you know, than it was work, and it, uh, and it and it was a nice counterbalance. But you know, I started out working for the government. Went to work for Northrop, came back as a uh, worked for a consulting company, CACI. Went uh, went to work for Lockheed for a long time. Went to work with Janine Adams uh, in in public relations. It was Janine husband, Robert, who who uh, uh, finally got me to finish certain win, which I'd started some 15 years earlier. And, uh, well, you know, managed to just kind of attract some things as things went along, had a lot of good luck along with some bad luck, but just, just constantly, you know, keep keep the balls in the air and uh, you can't be guaranteed something will turn out. But if you but if you stop, you can be guaranteed that, uh, you, know, at, you know, at that point you're... You're intellectually dead, if not uh, uh, emotionally, and perhaps physically too. So, in that sense, uh, that's what I got from John.
0: So, other than and other than staying in great shape, how has yoga affected your life?
1: Yoga is one of the one of the uh, roots of John's of John's strategy. I'm working on a paper on that. In fact, I've been working on a paper on a book on it ever since I started yoga. If you go back and look at the ancient texts in yoga. Uh, The the really really old stuff in yoga is not really that useful because what they're talking about is is what we would call meditation. Now, meditation in itself is a is a uh, very worthwhile activity. You know, recommended highly to to yoga. to everybody, you know, really basically. And for that, I recommend Shinnyu Suzuki's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Beginner's Mind being a very Boodian concept. No sign that John ever heard of Shunyu Suzuki. You may have heard of DT Suzuki, totally unrelated Japanese guy also popularizing Zen. But the idea of, um, of beginner's mind also goes all the way back into the ancient Indian writings. Which date from about the same period as Sun Tzu. and I'm thinking particularly the Bhagavad Gita, particularly the first twelve or so books of the Bhagavad Gita, um, where they're they're really talking about what we would call orientation and ways to keep your orientation well matched to reality, because that's really what yoga, in its absolute essence, is all about. Uh, it's, it's difficult if you're if all you are thinking about with yoga is you know how to how do you hold your back foot more your two position i mean that's interesting but think about that when you're in warrior two and you're concerned with where your back foot is and how far you're going down in your front foot that's mindfulness that's that's being aware of your surroundings and realizing that you're not quite stable making a very small change in your posture realizing that your arms are starting to maybe get tired in this so what do you do so you spread your fingers out a little you inhale you inhale through your belly so you're constantly Going through that conceptual spiral loop, refining your position, under, trying to understand where you are in relation to uh, to your internal self and to your external environment. That's yoga, and that's also Boyd. You know, uh, so that's why I say. And the and the Indians, I guess, not having a whole lot, to, no lot to the Indians were not, by the way, into modern anatomy in the, in the least. So they had this this whole woo woo thing of chakras and nadis and all of that. There's some very famous anecdotes. Uh, later on, of Indian guys who, who cut up corpses and didn't find any of those things. So they, they dropped the whole Hindu and, and, uh, and, and yoga and all that went on to become Muslims or Christians or atheists or something else. But the idea was, they were stopping and thinking about how do we develop this perception, this, this clear perception of the external world? How do we get rid of, in fact, it's the second verse of the Yoga Sutras uh attributed or quite erroneously to a guy named patanjali there was a historical figure named patanjali but he had he had nothing to do with the with the yoga sutras which says the purpose of yoga is to and I'll, I'll paraphrase this is to he said reduce the imperfections in the mind and in yoga the mind is our lens through which we see the world and there's an us inside the lens called the purusha it's the 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 ghost in the machine, looking through the world, through the mind, and if the mind has cataracts in it, think of it, then you don't see the world clearly. So the question is, how do you re- reduce these filters in our mind that's stopping us from seeing the world clearly? And that's essentially the second sutra of the um, of the uh, yoga sutras, probably, you know, it was probably starting to be collected about the same time that the aphorisms from the Sun Tzu book started to be collected and the same time the Lao Tse book started to be collected and uh uh and that's just john that's Boyd. you know that's that's it in the nutshell that's orientation how do you you know keeping our orientation better matched reality than our opponents or in the business better matched reality than our customers uh is uh, sort of what void is all about inside the business you can trace that so once you trace that and you so, well, what kind of techniques did they come up with for doing this and they there are six, I think, recognized Indian schools called darsh- darshanas, of which yoga is is one of them. It's not, as I understand, the most popular one in India. One called, I think it's Vindada, is actually the most popular. Very close. You would be hard put for me to even try to explain, even if I understood it, the difference between the two. But the Indians, very important. they're not even closely related. I was kind of there saying exactly the same thing, but. That's the way that it, uh, that it goes. So they studied these ideas and they thought about them. And then when, it, uh, when Zen came to, um, to uh, China, probably in the six 700, somewhere along in there, and merged in with Taoism and the idea of flow and the idea of Taoism as there being a way. And the purpose of, of these practices to bring your practice in correspondence with the way. Uh, and that got that added together with uh, with these ideas of, of, of mindfulness and orientation coming in from India. And essentially, you get Zen. And so you also get the Toyota production system. Toyota says, yeah, their idea every year is there is a there is a way of manufacturing and waste is essentially how we deviate from that way. So what we want to do every year is make sure that we get closer and closer to the to the way of manufacturing, which is defined by fluidity, is defined by a lack of friction, it's defined by um, a lack of hesitation, of of a very tight integration with the customer so that we and the customer form a symbiotic system, we're not reacting to them. And again, the HY war kind of stuff. Um, And so that's, all those roots go way, 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 way back, so. not being not having really any access to, to practicing Taoist that it, it, and, and needing to keep flexibility in my older age uh, yoga was a, a more natural uh, a more natural choice so and I still practice practice every day I do a little bit of teaching I'm not teaching professionally anymore but I teach some amateur classes here for uh, for where we live we have a club that that does uh, um, Tai Chi and Yoga, so I teach Yoga for them, and uh, still kind of do research every now and then on, uh, on 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 how ways they came up with implementing these uh, these ideas and saying, "Gee, what any any uh, nuggets in there that I can use for snowmobiles uh, uh, later on." So long-winded answer, but that's basically that's basically what it is. So well and uh, of course i recommend yoga to pretty much everybody just if you forget all that stuff about my it's just for the physical side of it uh because when i started in yoga, know, i really wasn't aware of a lot of this it was just to me it was just physical i was a runner getting on up in years i needed something to uh to help me stay uh agile loose to keep joints loose to h- hopefully help avoid injuries and of course once i got into it discovered the rich history behind it that was sort of icing uh you know, icing on the cake. So, anyway, there it is. As we say, Namaste, which simply means hello. How are you? Can also mean goodbye.
0: So, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I'll put a link. Thank, thank you very much for that. Bit I'll put a link in the in the um, in the podcast with a link to to certain to win anti website, um, and maybe maybe pull out some of the some of the key points and and let like say everyone can download all this all this stuff for free. Um, is there anything? Is there anything else that you can that we can add? Or I'm guessing that you, I don't see you. I mean, I know you're on social media, so I can put your Twitter um, profile on there as well. Sure.
1: Um, uh, no, I think we've pretty much beat everything to death here, uh, at least for the uh, you know for the time being. Um, Yeah, it's, you know, Boyd's got a very, very rich, uh, rich body of work there that's uh, available to anybody that would like to uh, pick it up and uh, see what kind of ideas they can come up with. My only advice to people is that Boyd is not about studying Boyd. Boyd is about building snowmobiles. And he shows you some ways to do it, and then he shows you some examples of of, uh, completed snowmobiles. And so that's basically, if he inspires you to be more creative, he inspires you to broaden your horizons, to look across a wider variety of disciplines, just look at patterns and open up in the back to the sources and look at all the different different um, uh, areas that he investigates. Or so at the beginning of, I think, a strategic game and organic design, he, he says, these are the fields we're going to investigate. And they, then there's uh, neurophysiology and psychology and all kinds of stuff. Uh, that doesn't really seem to apply. But then you see how he takes bits and pieces of these things and puts them together to solve a real-world problem. Same thing Musashi said uh, in, his, um, in his book when he said, you know you, should be a, you know, you should be a student of the arts and sciences and you should develop a facility for music. And this is for a guy whose only purpose in life was to cut other people with a sword. But like a friend of mine once said, any kind of conflict should be thought of as a problem-solving exercise. And when you're trying to solve problems, you can't have too many tools. So I'll leave your, leave your, um, leave your readers with that. It's a fantastic example of creating and employing tools across a wide variety of domains. Mm. There may even be some specific themes in there that they find useful. So with that in mind, I think that's about everything I can say on the subject.
0: Well, Chet, thank you very much, mate. It's been a pleasure, and 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 just and thanks again for for the difference that you've made in my life, mate. Because it's um you may not have <laughs> noticed, but it's you've had a you had a a really big impact on on my life
1: boyd is going to continue to to live in this it's more folks like you that are using this stuff and applying it out in the real world rather than people like me who are basically you know having said it and have now closed the book and retired it's folks like you that are going to do it so strongly encourage you to uh you know to keep on so
0: brilliant thanks mate
1: take care have a good one now
0: cheers bye 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 This has been the Art and Science of Success, I'm Jonathan Brown. If you want to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join our community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organisation. You can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organisation. If you enjoyed this show be sure to subscribe and if you have a minute pop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give us a positive rating. Thanks for listening.